friends, today we have a very special episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. As you have probably realized, we've been doing more interviews, and part of that is for me to be able to speak with people that can teach me things, that can give me the benefit of their expertise and their experiences. And today's show is no different. We have a great guest today, Dr. Charles Cole, somebody that I know on many different levels. We used to have a podcast called The Eight Black Hands. Charles and I met years ago and actually have been communing for years over Black education, over really moving our communities forward when it comes to understanding what schooling is about, understanding how to get our kids to good, and understanding that our kids aren't at good right now. Dr. Cole is the founder and the leader of an organization called Energy Converters, which does a lot of things, creates reports, but one of the things that I admire about them the most is that they create participatory research with young people. That means that the young people actually are treated like scholars themselves. They look at the data that affects their lives. They crunch that data and create reports, and then they deliver the reports to decision makers and the public in their own voice. And this is the thing that I think is really important about all of our work, those of us that do parent advocacy, those of us that are fighting for better schools. At the end of the day, it's about young people getting educated. And I can't think of a better way than what Energy Converters does with them for that. Charles today is going to talk with us a little bit about parent agency. And this is really important because all of America is having a conversation right now about parent rights and about parent this and that and the other. But there's a missing group of parents that are not part of that whole juggernaut of parent rights. And there are no governors passing laws on behalf of the parents that we're going to talk about today, specifically Black parents and Black and Brown parents and BIPOC or Indigenous or whatever you want to call, whatever's your word and your flavor of the day. <laughs> of the day. But anyways, Charles, welcome to the show. I appreciate you, man, for coming on. Oh, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you, man. And I, I'm ready to, to have this conversation. I think it's an important one. Here's a good place to start because I could describe for people the parents we're talking about and some of the things that they might be working on. But you actually have been going different places in the country and speaking directly with parents. A lot of your work has been focused on speaking directly to parents that don't get heard, parents that don't have their issues lifted up. And you just recently made a trip to Connecticut to have a workshop directly with some parents. What's the real situation that came out of that? What's the learning? And how can we flesh out for people that will never have that experience what these parents are experiencing? Yeah, man. One, it was just great and just much love to the Connecticut Parents Union. Gwen Samuel is really, really cool, man. Really, I split my workshops up into, into three parts, and that's before the schoolhouse, inside the schoolhouse, and outside the schoolhouse, like after the schoolhouse. And we spend a lot of intentional time, but before we even start talking about what the school do, how the system, whatever it is, there's a lot of inner work that we start with. And one of those biggest things is, and I used to say this a lot on A Black Hands, was like a lot of the parents that I work with have, are carrying a lot of guilt. They're carrying a lot of grief and guilt. They feel in some way deep down that they deserve this poor education that their kid get. They deserve a certain level of squalor. And we have to, I make sure that there's tissue around because we gotta, I gotta, you know, I call it the pillar of salt, right? Like, I don't know how many people read the Bible, but you know, it was like, look, from this moment on, we're gonna look forward. Okay, you didn't show up to every meeting in the fourth grade. You didn't do this. You didn't, maybe you graduated high school. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you got a PhD. Maybe you got a third, whatever. From this point forward, I need you to understand your kid deserves better and you deserve for the system to work regardless of how much self-punishment you've given to yourself. 
So once I do that, <laughs> and we spend a lot of time there, my, my, you know, you know this, my professional career actually started as a social worker. So I use a lot of things from social work there. Then we can kind of release and have that cleansing moment. And we can start to have conversations where these people start to see themselves as just as valuable as some of these other parents that are very active or in good schools or whatnot. Right. So, you know, when, when you ask what came out of that, it was people being able to be themselves, to be seen, to know that you still want to God's people, man. Like it don't matter what you've done. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, we're not doing a generational curse thing here. Your kids deserve X. So after that, then we like, Let's get you to get to know your kids. So we call it articulations of your child. And we ask certain questions. Hey, what's the best environment your kid works in? Uh, what makes your kids smile? What, what do they react to? How do they shut down? When th- you know, just And what a lot of parents were realizing, even the ones that were very active, was that they couldn't answer all the questions. So I got a lot of feedback in the days after I left where they were like, I sat down with my daughter and this is how that conversation went. Like it was really, really eye-opening. And my first, my kid was freaked out because I just never genuinely asked about them. And we we had so many breakthroughs and so many, you know, some people talked about how they broke down and was like crying and stuff because it's like, oh, I've been talking at my kid, but not necessarily with my kid. And this can happen in the second grade or the 12th grade. You know what I mean? Just we make it that way. So there are just some mindsets and things that we want to get set beforehand. Before you go into that school, I need you to understand that that school is not a person. It's not an entity. And if you're looking for love, and and a lot of us Black people are looking for love. You've had your history robbed from you. Many of you have had to deal with a lot of whatever you've had to deal with. I understand firsthand. You know what I'm saying? But if you're looking at your school for love, you're going to be sadly mistaken. I tell them to look at it like a stoplight in your neighborhood. You need that thing to turn red, yellow, and green when it's supposed to. You don't ask it if it likes you. You don't ask it to hug you. (laughs) If you get one that loves you, then that's great. But I needed, I wanted my parents to understand the business of school, like what it was in its essence. So they couldn't be hoodwinked by, you know, I won't use the full term, but something, something in bubble gum. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, You need mm -hmm. results. You don't need placation. And once we get you to that space, then we start talking about going into the school. So now you've done this pre-work. You are you are introducing yourself to your kid's teacher. We make a letter for you. You filled out these things. The letter is pre-done. It goes to everyone. But it's basically saying, look, I'm such and such a kid, uh, parent. My kid is a bright kid, blah, blah, blah. They are good at these things. And I just want you to know we're partners in this. You let me know how you need me. And I'll make sure that, you know, I'll let you know our lines of communication are open. And then I give them trackers. So Elementary kids, you visit in that school twice a semester. High school, middle school, you visit in twice a semester. Yo, can you rattle off all your kids' teachers? You can't? Cool. Don't trip. Here's a You need to have that stuff in close proximity. And then we just give them guides and help them just bring out the inner you know, quarterback in them. That don't mean, when I say you as a quarterback, that don't mean you got to know everything. That don't mean you will know everything. That don't mean you're always going to get it right. But you are intentional. We've worked on how to set goals. We teach them how to set visions. And I, you know, I won't do the, I won't go through the whole book right now, Chris, but one of the, I'll, I'll just, this is how we do the vision in peace, right? Where there's no vision, people perish. And that includes your child. Do you want your kid to perish? Okay, then get a damn vision. <laughs> Picture 20 years from now, what do you want your kid to be doing? Now we know your kid is their own person. We know that they might do their own thing. But picture the best possible reality for your kid. Mm-hmm. Okay, you got it? Cool. Like, you want them to be autonomous. You want them to be able to make good money. You want them to be good people. Cool. Let's get really specific in what that looks like. So if that's true in 20, what needs to be true in 10 years? Okay. What needs to be true in five years? What needs to be true in 
two years, in one year. So you're reverse engineering their success. Mm -hmm. Six months, six months, three months, next month, two weeks, two weeks, the end of this week, tomorrow. Right. And, and like that is, you know, and it, it gives them a different type of pep. Right. Like because they've never been able to see it that way. And again, things are going to change and happen, but you need to have your script. You know, every football team, know, they have their first 10 plays scripted out or something like that. Like you just need to know it. So they're getting these tools. They're also learning that, hey, just because your kid got an A in that English class does not mean grades do not equal proficiency. So I do a whole piece on what proficiency is and what that means. And so you need to be asking pointed questions. Uh, I wrote an article a while ago that you helped get published in Ebony. Thank you. That was a lifetime dream for me because I grew up with Ebony Magazine. But it was the five questions Black parents should be asking. And really any parent should be asking, but I, be, I know my audience. But one of those is, what's my kid's reading level? What math level are they on? Because And, and here's a, this is a litmus test for your teacher. If they can't tell you that, or if they can't say, hey, I'll get that back to you in a week or two or so, if you can't get that, then you, you know that you need to be taking a trip somewhere. You know what I'm saying? If you ask your kid's teacher, what's the goal of this semester? What's the goal for this, for this quarter? Whatever the case is, right? And they don't have answers for you. If they don't know how to scaffold, then you need to be talking to your student's principal. And we also have a letter for you to introduce yourself there. So- Anyway, it's, it's full of stuff like that. And it's completely free, by the way. It ain't free to book me, but the book is free. <laughs> you know, what I think is really interesting about this, though, is you said the thing that actually rings true in my ears are always tools. What are your tools? Like, what do you have? So when you were just talking about you have prepared letters for them, that to me feels a little bit more disciplined in a lot of people give parents soft help or compassionate mm -hmm. help. But, the, you know, it's, it falls short of actually making them independent and making them kind of active in the way that you know that they can beat the system if they need to. You have this fancy term, and I'm going <laughs> to introduce it to all my, my, to my listeners oh, right now. You have this fancy term, agentic parents, agentic yep. parenting. Uh, and you talk a lot about agency. Some people get the concept of agency wrong, but uh, I, think, I think you get the concept of agency right. But everything you just said about the way you want to prepare parents to roll up to schools and find out how their child is doing and then be planful and then direct some of what's going on with their child requires you as a parent to feel a level of power to even be able to do that, that many mm -hmm. of us don't feel. And by many of us, I mean, like there was a point in my life where I got treated very poorly as a parent by the schools because I didn't know enough. I, you know, I rolled up in schools in the, in, in the beginning of my parenting journey kind of ignorant about what goes on and what takes place and whatnot. I'm a different person today. But everything you just said requires you to actually believe before you get the tools and everything that you can roll up in there as a person of power with your children. Tell me more about your concept of agency and what we need to be imparting on parents. You said this first part, they just need to be able to know that they deserve better. But there's a second part like, okay, and they need to be able to know that they can do something about the system not working for their kid. Tell me more about your concept of agency. Yeah, man. You kind of just, I, my grandmother would say discernment. You know what I mean? It's just like, I want to also start by saying too, because I see people misuse agency. You don't let the system off the hook. The system is still the system. It is not a crazy either or. What it is saying is, it is saying that you, this is how I explain it to people. A-N-D. There's awareness, there's navigation, and then there's duty. And so one, when I talk about agency, it has these components. Are you aware of what is actually happening around you? Are you aware 
if there's a microcosm that you're a part of that's a larger issue, are you aware of these systems? Are you aware of like your history is to the greatest ability that you can be, right? That awareness, like how this school runs. Are you aware that that school is not actually a person? And I know that saying that sounds crazy when I say it, but when you hear people talk about schools, they're talking about it as if this is like a, a second parent or a third parent. It's like, well, no, it's a business. It is a business. It is an entity of an empire. Okay, hmm. this is how I need to, you to understand. The Roman Empire is not teaching their kids how to take down the empire. So why do you think the American Empire is going to do that, right? When you go and understanding that, you know there's other things you have to do. Navigation. A lot of people like to talk about fixing the system, and I think we should. And the parents that I work with still have to deal with this thing tomorrow. They still have a responsibility to navigate it right now. And I think it is disrespectful to send somebody into the wilderness and you ain't gave them a gun. You ain't gave them a spear. You ain't, like, I know it's bears and they ca they probably can't beat the bear, bro. But like, I mean, damn, you're going to give me, you got all these guns. Can I have one? Can I have something? You know what I mean? Can I have a fighting chance? You know, don't say it's the system. Well, that, that bear eats people and he's hungry. And then the last thing is duty. Like I try to instill that once you know better, how do you do better? So if you're that parent and you got all these tools and one of the things we teach you is how to make friends with other parents in your kids' classes. So you can split up this damn work, man. Like if you got, if, if Chris meets two other dads and a mom and they pull out their calendar and like, all right, I'm going to be traveling most of October. Oh, Jenny, you got that? All right. Hey, cool. Like, like Miss Jenny is going to check in on my kid as well. And we're going to, and, and you know what I can do in November? The kids want to play sports. I'm going to make sure I handle all this stuff. Like you have to build your village. If they say it takes a village, but the black village has been broken there's nothing stopping you from rebuilding it. That's agency. It is using everything at your disposal to know and make sure you're getting what you need so you can survive and then hopefully move from survival to thriving. And like that is when I'm talking about agency, that's when I'm talking about it. I'm not talking about it in some right wing talking points of bootstrapping this and that and the third and people shouldn't get welfare or benefits. And I, no, man, that's not what I'm saying. I grew up on welfare. I grew up you know, in the projects. And I remember my grandmother, sweetest lady I knew, super poor, made sure everybody ate. And I was like, oh, granny, when I get older, I'm going to get an apartment right next to you. And my grandmama, who was the sweetest person, man, looked at me in a different way and was like, your ass will not be living here. If you are living here, I failed you. You're not going to be living here. There's something better. I want you to go see the world. And now I do, my grandmother died when I was nine, 10 years old. But I'm doing things that she probably wouldn't understand, but she knew that I would be able to do. Like, she she prepared me. Like, I had a very sobering childhood. My parents were on drugs. I was not, it wasn't a secret to me. And, and, and so my grandmother would, you know, teach me to love my parents. And she was so graceful with them. I don't know what the conversations were. She never talked bad about my parents in front of me, ever. She always made me respect them because I did not want to be with them. I wanted to be with her. And she was like, listen, like, when you get back there, there's going to be some things you got to do. And it ain't fair. You got to, but you got to take care of your brother and sister. You got to help your parents in this moment. And to tell a little kid that and to equip me in those ways, you know, people can say what they want. And I know there's Twitterati that got a whole bunch of thoughts and, and they know everything. You know what I mean? But that woman prepared me for a battle that I wouldn't have been ready for had she not. She, she built discernment an agency inside of me. She didn't have a lot of money. She didn't have no fancy book learning. And that's why I get so upset with a lot of these academic people. Because any of your academia that's supposed to be targeted at Black people, but don't include people like my grandmother or it looks down on them, fuck you. 
Excuse my language. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you didn't say you're French because it's not French. People say all the <laughs> yeah, time, excuse my French. That's not French. Hey, man, I'm talking about Big Mama, man. But, <laughs> but you know, and, and, and she always said, you're going to make mistakes and you got to learn how to forgive yourself. And that's one of the things that I struggle with. So if I struggle with it and I got education and access and money, then these people got to be struggling with this in spades. And that was my hypothesis. And it's been proven to be right in a lot of different places. So I just try to give them you know, something that helps them keep going and they can take back a driver's seat in their life, man. Yeah, Because uh, that, that car is going to move whether you driving or not. I prefer you be driving. I know you have seen a lot of what I've seen because we are in this, you know, nonprofit industrial complex. There's a lot of people showing up doing parent work of some form or another. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that have a program, a PowerPoint just a proposal, (laughs) whatever, on helping parents. And oftentimes it almost feels like the parent, though, is like an afterthought. They're the product in some ways. Mm -hmm. They're actually not the subject. They're the product in some ways. Yeah. Why do you think that there's all of this parent activity, this parent-serving activity, and we're still not finding that any of this work that we do is along the lines of what you're saying, like empowering parents? And I even hate using this word. You have heard me say this before. Mm -hmm. I don't think we need to empower parents because saying empower means you have the power and you're transferring it to them. And you're giving it to them. There you go. I bestow you with power. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, look at me. I'm giving you power. And, you know, I changed the words a little bit to to say that parents should be in power. And Mm -hmm. that is different than empowering parents. Right. Like. If you recognize from the day one, no, that really is the child's first teacher. That's the child's guardian. That is the Mm -hmm. president of their child's education. So when you talk to that person, you are talking to the president of that child's education. But we do so much parent work that actually sees parents as feeble, sees them as an afterthought. We slap T-shirts on them. We, you know, we have them come to chicken dinner nights and, you know, and lecture them and talk at them in ways, but it doesn't leave them with the power, right? Why do you think like... We don't have more empowered parents or more parents in power after all this millions of dollars that has been spent on doing parent work. Yeah, man. I don't know. Uh, I think, I mean, I, think, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, I mean, I think people are adults. And if you choose to do that and show up and, and they're giving you a check and it's working for you. And I mean, maybe that person got a good vision. Maybe do you have the benevolent leader, right? I, I don't know, right? Like, I'd be, I'd be minding my business for the most part, but I get what you're saying. I think. I think some people don't want necessarily that type of power. I think some people feel better when they have a charismatic leader that's leading them. And I think that's fine. I think that there are, you know, different people have different temperaments. But I told, just like I told those dads in the room, though, and, and I think you would have appreciated this, is that when there's an education conversation and you step in, it shifts. It changes. So mm-hmm. whether you want this power or this responsibility or not. It's kind of been bestowed on you in certain type of ways because you can because people are so not used to seeing certain types of fathers involved or hearing from them like it's there. And I think that you have to prepare people to be able to lead. If you choose to lead, that's up to you. You know, I, I don't know. There's this thing about the Roman Empire. I like I like Marcus Aurelius. I'll read some of his stuff. But his son was a slacker <laughs> and he, his son wanted to be king. So look, man, he took his son out to the battlefield. Marcus Aurelius was a really dope fighter and, and he. He just had this top general beat the shit out of his kid. Like, but he's like, you want to be the king. You want to go battle. Like, I have to prepare you to be able to lead an empire. And some people buckle under that. And and, and his son would eventually buckle when he became king. I don't want my parents to buckle. And what some people might say is, I, I, I also come from my work from a different perspective, Chris. I'm not a parent. 
And, and I didn't build this from a parent perspective. I built it from a child's perspective, watching his parents want to do better, but not be able to. And so it gives me a different perspective. And I think that I am some, for a lot of people, I'm the vestibule in which their child is talking to them and I'm in some way forgiving them, right? Like, look, regardless where we started, even if your kid say they don't like you or say they hate you or don't want to, they want to see you keep fighting on their behalf. They want you to keep showing up. So like, this is just part of being a child. This is a, this goes, it goes with that. And I think that's another piece of mine, right? It's like people get to talk to their 15 year old son through me. They get to, you know, they get to see, you know, their kid through different eyes. And I'm very honest with them. They'll ask me, how did you feel when this happened? Or how did it feel when your parents showed up to the school? I ain't like when my parents showed up to the school. Like, like I, I just didn't. I had younger parents. My mother was a pretty lady. My dad was an attractive dude. My dad also had a really big Marines S voice. And, you know, and he 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 got a lot of attention when he would come. And and like, you know, it's just he didn't have those tools, but he set some things. Somebody posted, well, these kids are poor and this, and and and, and you can't expect them to bullshit. I was in shelters. My parents were while my parents were both on crack. My dad still was like, you're not going outside to that is done. And I'm checking your homework. Like my dad might have had something in his hand smoking it and was going through math problems and was like, hey, boy, come do this again, man. You you rush through this. Like it, it, it doesn't cost money to like set a standard. And I'm not doing some bootstrap thing again. I don't want white people taking what I'm saying and rolling into some like <laughs> Republican right wing, you know, talking points. But what I'm saying is we got to stop pitying our people. We got to stop acting like because people are not quote unquote middle class or whatever the case is, they don't have the capacity to learn because what also comes with that is then you overestimate how well middle class parents and rich parents are doing. Everybody got their battle. Everybody's struggling in their way. And once you realize that you are nothing but a, a bead of sand on a beach and you see yourself as, you know what I'm saying, like having a similar thing that a lot of other people are having, it's easier to have empathy, it's easier to forgive yourself when you make mistakes, but you know that you have a vision and you need to keep moving forward because you need the net to be positive. Everything won't be positive, but we want a plus one on net positivity. And so that's really how I think about it, man. And so I don't know what these other folks are doing. I think other folks you know, some people are issues people like, OK, this is the issue we got. And parents are the vestibule in which we're going to get that because people care about sympathetic parents. I hated seeing this in Oakland all the time where schools, traditional and charter, whatever, mostly traditional because the charter school, whatever, but mostly traditional would, would use kids. They would let these kids be wrong as rain, but they would have them read these scripts and they could barely read the script. But they knew that if kids could be emotional and do these things, it would draw the type of media attention. They were being pawns. And so I just want my people, somebody going to try to use you. I just need you to understand <laughs> what that is so you can then enter the negotiations. And my upbringing just taught me that, man. Yeah, I think on this last point that you were just making, too, just so listeners understand, by young people are handed a script. This is when people that are wanting to push a policy or whatnot, education has a lot of politics. The local politics get a lot goofy. And that cast of actors in those kind of battles actually show up every two years, every time there's a contract dispute. And it, it, if you go to different cities, it's funny because you see the same kind of play. Mm -hmm. uh, and they bring out some black folks to be emotional at the microphone. They bring out some students to be emotional at the microphone. They all kind of sound alike and they, it feels a little bit scripted and a little bit weird and off. And sometimes on all sides, even on the reform side, what people do with parents is with those scripts, it's so specific to one issue that you know for a fact that 
this isn't real people talking. So you'll have people show up and say, I don't know. All I think is that the teachers need to get paid more. Or you'll have a parent say, show up and say, I just think we need 30,000 more quality seats. Right. And you got, you, nah, I talk to a lot of parents about a lot of things. Right. And I don't ever sit, <laughs> I don't sit at Miss Lenny's table and have Miss Lenny say to me, you know, Chris, you know what we need in this neighborhood? We need 30,000 more quality seats. Or we need a universal enrollment system. Or we need teachers just to get paid more and, you know, everything will be okay. We need the school board to act on behalf of this contract stuff to make sure. Man, listen, listen. Parents will say a million things when you talk to them about what go, what's going on in their lives, but I bet you you can listen to a thousand hours of conversation with them and not hear that stuff, right? Right. You will hear a different set of things that involve kind of reality, struggling to just do real things and be a real person, right? And I think that should be the agenda. Like, like you Absolutely. did with going into Connecticut and talking to people directly. I think if your agenda, your parent agenda, is not coming specifically from what you hear in those real situations from real people and real parents that may not even fit with your agenda, you're not being real yet, right? You're not really, you don't want to hear it or something. No. I, I mean, I agree. And, but, and again, like, and again, I, again, I'm somebody who believes in autonomy of adults too. So like, if like, if you know all that and you still make that choice, then God bless you. And I don't have, I, I have no judgment, right? Like, I, but I also think that it's like, you know, and I do this with our young people, but it's like, what's the issue plaguing you? What do you want? Okay, cool. Let's research that. What is the actual data around that? How is your kid looking or how are you looking or whatever the case is? And then it's like, well, what's the strategies we get to? Now, if you land and you do this research and you're like, I want cleaner, safer schools, the school around the corner ain't going to get it for me or whatever the case is. Oh, there's an opportunity to build this new magnet school, this new charter school that I can get into. And then if it's like, oh, I did this research, I've been steeped in this. This is what I want. And I want this option. That's 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 a whole different parent. That's a whole different beast. And the reason why it doesn't usually go like that is because those parents are then free thinking people that are not beholden to what your mission might be. As long as, and I tell this to parents, your missions need to align with the mission of the people that you're working with. And it's so far that it does great. And when it doesn't, then you can leave. Like, you know, I mean, you can do the thing that you want to do. I always tell schools and parent leaders or whatever, whoever books me, like, listen, I don't know or care what your main agenda is. This is what I do. And I do it really well. So you have to understand that there might be some questions that they have for you at the end of this. So if you know that and you still want to book me, I'm coming. And some people don't, right? Some people are not feeling that. And that's cool. Probably a lot of people don't. And that's cool. But I fought my own university around this stuff though, man. I wanted to write about people from where I lived and I wanted to build something that my parents could have used, but it was too late for them. So when a so so when a professor is like, well, this needs to speak to the academy. I was like, but the academy don't look like me or care about me. Like, all y'all, y'all, y'all pump a lot of union talk in here. You pump a lot of different rhetoric. You pump a lot of black kids are desolate and they're this and they're that. And you use a lot of like the master class or or whatever, the master race or or whatever, all these different terms. You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna write this in a way that the parents that I love can read it and use it. And if they can't, it's coming out. And again, I had a really good, you know, chair that rocked with me, man. But you got when you got to fight for those things, when you got to listen, yo, in the empires, you need a popper class, bro. You need you need the proletariat. You need poor people. You need people at the bottom of that. You know what I'm saying? You need folks that you can build economies on top of. There's a reason why black people might be the coolest and might pick out what culture is and might dictate culture. But there's usually somebody that don't look like them that is running it. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a love of things and there's a business of things. 
I'm not telling you you can't love stuff. I want you to love, but I don't want you to be blind to the business that's happening on your back and at your, because of your blood. And and Chris Stewart, I'm going to call Chris Stewart out right now because he needs to write this or I'm going to steal it and I'm going to take it. <laughs> Picture a young black boy, just this full body and attached to his head is a price tag. Attached to his ears is a price tag. Attached to his eyes, attached to his chest, his arms, right? Your black boy is worth millions and millions of dollars, but you're poor. And mm-hmm. in order for them to squeeze that money out, your kid has to not be proficient in a lot of things. Like, or your kid has to be the best athlete or your kid has to your like- Your kid has to need uh, middle-class college degree people to help them. That's right. What, that's what you, so, so it doesn't actually, and this is, you know, I talked earlier about the nonprofit industrial complex. If next year, if you serve homeless people, and you give a report to your funders that says you've made it so there's 50% less poor people. Your funder is going to be like, okay, we're good. That's success. You you have, you know, so I guess you're about to put yourself out of business, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you in the poverty business and uh, it looks like business is not good. It looks like it's it's great for the people. Right. Because now they're, they're, <laughs> they're less poor or whatnot. And I think what you're alluding to is this thing that I always talk about. Black children are the new cotton. Mm-hmm. And everybody wants to harvest them for their per pupil income. And they are a commodity. And that's not original or new. If you study slavery and you look at the people that were enslaved, those people were insured like a car is insured. Those people are like, like they had value, even though we think of, when we think about that time, we think of them as being a valueless people. No, 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 no. They were a total commodity and they didn't stop being a commodity just because emancipation came. They didn't stop being a, I mean, after emancipation came, the commodity became work leasing them, convict leasing, right? So they became, a, their bodies were a commodity again. And then, you know, they moved up north and started working in, you know, kind of, manufacturing type jobs and whatnot was the best jobs they had had into that point. But now they were a different commodity. They were a labor commodity, right? And they were at the bottom of the labor commodities. They were very useful. They were very valuable because you could give them less and demand more out of them, right? You could get more value out of them. So when a, a mom walks up to a school today with her young person, oftentimes that mom is feeling poor and like you are giving us something and like you are you are bestowing upon us a service and giving us kind of like, you know, a, an entitlement handout. When in actuality, that child that they are bringing up there is actually paying the mortgage of many people, right? Like they're, the, the number of people that will touch that kid in a day who are earning a 401k or a pension, a salary, who are taking their tax money that they are earning off of that child back to some suburb somewhere and putting it into the tax base of their kids, where they have much better services and everything. That black child is a profit center, not a cost center. The black child is a profit center. And if our parents don't know the worth of their child, I mean, and you've heard me say this before too, and I don't think that, I don't think that everybody's gonna agree with, on, on this point, but it's not just the education. It's also other nonprofits get money off of kids, you know, working with kids, providing services, but it's even deeper than that. There are times where you would take a kid to see a doctor and the doctor is writing you a prescription for Ritalin with a pen that says Ritalin on it. And you have to ask yourself, how did he get a pen that says Ritalin on it? On the pad that says Ritalin on it. (laughs) Well, you know, Big Pharma, your child, let's medicate your child, whatever. Now, this is going to start sounding like Alex Jones territory, right? But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's not to be conspiratorial and it's not conspiratorial when it's all out in the open. Like when you can just see the fact that you're not poor, you're not broke. This child that you are bringing to the system, you're not a beggar. This child that you are bringing to them 
is actually their livelihood. And I don't know if it goes as deep as what you just said, but I do know that Black misery in education, Black failure, Black lack of proficiency is profitable. It is a, a it's a profit center. Absolutely. And I think, but I, I, I think you also have to, you gotta, I'm using all the little black church stuff today, man, but you, you, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta start people out on liquid and then you, when they, when they can handle solid foods, then you give them solid foods. And I think that part of what you talked about, I have to see myself in a certain type of way before I can even go down the logical train that you just put me on. Right. Like you, if you don't want people riding in the caboose of that train, right. It's like, you have to see yourself as more valuable. You have to see yourself as worthy. You have to see that you ain't the only person with demons. Everybody got demons. Everybody got real life stuff that's happening to them. It's just that black folks have been taught and made to have to have the most shame and grief about theirs. There's a lot of people that have learned shamelessness and they're very successful people. They just move on. You got this thing called a conscious and you might not be like, listen, man, I'm telling you, the things that have built me to get to this point, I used to go to NA meetings with my mother. I watched I was mesmerized by how those meetings ran. Those are some of the best and craziest and wildest stories that I've ever heard. And I heard it from everybody. Like, I used to think that no white people had problems. And then I saw a white lawyer who threw it all away, who started on cocaine and ended up on heroin and lost everything, right? It's like, oh, oh, that drug don't care. Oh, okay. Like, like I, it just, I, it, it didn't, it, I just thought we was cursed, bro. And like, and again, this is about, when people talk about knowledge of self and things like that, and it sounds super like, you know, kooky or whatever, right? But Naeem Agbar talks about this a lot. There is a psychological block, man, when you don't see yourself as worthy. And I've heard you talk about it just with, like, yo, man, I made a lot of mistakes with the first kid, man. But there was something, there's a bond that y'all, that you and that first kid have that is unbroken and, and, and your other kids will never fully be able to understand. But at the same time, it was such an education. That was your undergrad and grad school because now it was like with these, with that middle group, it's like, okay, I done got better at this. But with this baby, oh, I'm all types of worthy. It was like high school with the first one. I mean, listen, I was a, a dad in my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, and now I'm in my 50s. You look good, brother. I appreciate you. And I still have a young one coming up, right? I still have three in school right now. With that first one, it really felt like high school because I had to unlearn. Like my my high school was terrible. My 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 education was terrible at that point. Now I'm responsible for somebody else. And the only thing that I had going for me was the fact that I was like militant about y'all not gonna do to this kid what you did to me. This kid is gonna be like, he's gonna live the way that I should have lived, type of thing. Meaning he's gonna go straight on through like everybody else. And he's going to get right out and go to college and he's going to you know, do his thing, or whatever. I didn't think it was going to work, but that's what was in my mind. I was like, I was certain that something was going to go wrong. I was certain that somewhere uh, because my attitude about schools was this is going to be a failure. Right. And I didn't feel like I knew enough. Right. I was a reasonably intelligent person. But when you would walk into teachers would send you send you things and talk to things. And a lot of times your default is to say, well, you're the expert. Right. Like, you know, kind of like, you know, just go with the flow type of thing. But on the second child and the third child and the fourth child, you know, now, you know, my baby girl, who's the youngest out of all of them. You are right. When I roll up into a school, I am a much different parent. I'm what you might call a black belt parent at this point. There you go. Um, and and. I think that's the thing with all of our parents is there are graduations of in the beginning, they will make you feel very small and they will make you feel ignorant. Like you don't know enough to even ask questions, even ask the questions you should answer. And you got to get over that part quickly. 
Like <laughs> questions are your friend. Questions are your friend, right? And knowing who to ask questions, that's how, when I say I knew very little and I'm a black belt parent now, the only thing between those two distances was the only skill that I had was asking people things. I would find smart people or people who looked like they knew what they were talking about and ask them questions. And then they would say, well, Chris, you know, these are things that you need to watch out for. Don't let this happen. Don't let that. And then I'd be like, okay. Mm. It was like Neo in the Matrix. Like, oh, I know karate now. Right. <laughs> and I want all our parents to have that experience of going from feeling small to feeling like, no, 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 no. These are my kids. And you're not going to treat me like I don't know enough. Listen, I want to ask you about some very specific things because it kind of you kind of hinted at it here, too. I heard you say the word data at one point. I heard you say ask for specifics and you have tools about grade level and you have tools about proficiency. These are all concepts and these are all not always easy to understand concepts, but the politics around these particular concepts are crazy, right? So we have anti-data people in the politics of education, people who are basically telling parents, you don't need no data. You need to just trust your teachers, <laughs> you know, testing is bad. How do you deal with these, these issues like testing, assessment, proficiency data when they're so politicized? Yeah, I did. A, I, I was on a different talk last night and it was a very sweet teacher. I loved her. She was great, but she also hates testing, right? And she has some very strong feelings about it. And we had a really good conversation, but I think, you know, my thing has been the same. And I've been saying this as I was in college, there needs to be a way to assess you. If the tests are indeed racist then make a better assessment tool but you will be assessed in some kind of way. I can get on the train of all this stuff, but I do think, you know, the way that I think those tests are supposed to work, and I'm going to say this to somebody who was not good at tests and who hated taking them. I used to just mark any other, any kind of bubble, to be quite honest with you. But there needs to be an apparatus that tests to make sure that I am learning the things I'm supposed to learn, what the idea was supposed to be before Pearson and all these people got rich. But it was like, you should be so educated that the test is just fodder, it's easy stuff. And that's just not necessarily the case. And I think as a result, all standards have been lowered and dropped to kind of meet the standard of that test when the test should be the minimum, not the ceiling. And I think that for you, it's like, if you are that teacher or that school or that parent or that student, you really want to know if you're doing well, if you've been really putting in that work, if you've been, and other professions have that. Other professions have a way that, that, that lets you know if you're good or not, right? Like, so I think that there should be something that proves if, whether I'm learning. like, and, and I shouldn't have to wait 20 years to see what the result of that is, and especially when I have enough data, more than enough. When I tell you that less than three Black kids in California are reading on grade level, like that's a reality. But do you accept some of the feedback that educators have on that? You know, the excuses that they have for why that happens. And I don't even want to call them excuses. I'll just say- Oh, please tell me the excuses. I will go, will go through all of them. You know, if one in three Black kids in California isn't reading, but they're poor- their parents aren't very educated. They're dealing with a lot of other things. They're hungry. They have trauma. You know, like keep going down the line. You just can't expect them to learn at the same level as everybody else. Let me tell you, let me tell you what I think about that. If you sign up to work in an urban district or an urban area, <laughs> and then you are shocked at the sight of poverty, then you shouldn't be there. If you are a firefighter, <laughs> And it's a yeah. fire you got to run into. And you're like, oh, my God, that's hot. <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> you need a new job. <laughs> I also understand, and I'm not teacher bashing because I the, I know great teachers. And those teachers want to be pushed. Those teachers want parents to come in and ask them what the lesson plan is and what their kids should learn. Those teachers want their peers that they respect to come in and view their teaching so they can get better. What I'm saying is, is like when you signed up for this job and this mission, like, 
you had to know these was the things that was happening. And if you that naive, I don't know if I want you around those people. I'm not saying that poverty is not an issue. It's an issue, but it's going to be there tomorrow. So we just don't do nothing. Do we just turn this into an all day daycare? Like, you know, I don't, and I don't think teachers should be social workers. That's not your job. I was a social worker. It's different training. You know, it's a different skill set. No, you should teach and you shouldn't be a chef either. You shouldn't be like, oh, I need to feed you and whatever. Yeah. I mean, but listen, you and I have talked about this before in that not every doctor is meant to work in the emergency room. No. So if you put a doctor in an emergency room who wants to be doing family practice and that doctor says, oh, my God, there's so many heart attacks coming in here. These people don't eat well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Somebody's going to look over and say, man, listen, you better learn how to deal with heart attacks and gunshot wounds right. or you need to go to the suburbs and do like family practice. Yeah, right? bro. We are triage here. You you do triage work. <laughs> right. Here's the right. thing, though. And, I, and, I, and listen, man, teachers do deserve more respect. I think that the, 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 the position needs to be professionalized yet again. But just understand that if you get what you asked for, I need you to understand what that means as somebody who served on a very prominent hospital board that oversaw $4 billion, right? Like, listen. When you you get your MD, you get these things, but that's you're not done. If you want to be a surgeon, then you gotta like go and study and be under that another surgeon for three, four, five years. If you want to do another part, you have to go and learn like, it. Not if your patients are poor, though, Charles. Not if your parents, if your patients are poor. I mean, if your patients are poor, you can't expect them to be healthy. Hey, man. Hey. <laughs> I mean, listen, man. Poverty is a reality, and we and it does suck, man. I hope I do hope we get rid of it, but I don't. I'm not. I'm not living in a fanny in, in a fairy tale world. Like I deal with what's here. I am more of the emergency room doctor, and I would say Sharif is the surgeon. You know, I would say Sh like that's how I look at it, right? Like for people listening, uh, Sharif is Sharif El Meki, who runs an institute for building the Black Educator Pipeline, rebuilding the yes. Black Educator Pipeline. But he is also somebody that has run multiple schools in areas of Philadelphia, where you know where he's very dope, and you know he. He doesn't take no for an answer. He believes all kids can learn. And the schools that he ran were in areas where kids weren't learning, but they, in his school, they were learning, right? And this is the thing that we need people to see. A lot of times, if you've never seen it, you can't believe mm -hmm. in it because you haven't seen it, right? Right. So the way that we allow people to have a nihilistic attitude about Black student achievement is that they have never seen it any other way. Meaning there's people in Minnesota that used to do this on a pretty regular basis. There was a philanthropy here who would put local people on a plane to go somewhere else and see schools where black children were excelling. Black children that had all of the, the background stuff that we talk about, you know, all the like poverty, trauma and all that, that were doing well. And it, it, they would come back from those trips, making it hard to keep thinking what they thought before because now they've seen it. I, man, and we did it in Oakland and we would take parents and we would take them to San Jose or we'd take them somewhere else where it's the same demographic of kids the same poverty line, and they got more kids in that classroom, and they saw, like, I was like, oh, well, classes can't be good if they got over 25 people. We went to a class that had, like, 30-some kids, but it was, like, the way it was sectioned off, and there was different type of learning happening, and these kids were autonomous, and they were the same age, in some cases, younger than their kids, and they're like, oh, I'm not accepting that no more. Like, I'm not, mm -hmm. like, this is why they wouldn't allow slaves or enslaved people. I know that language changes. My bad, y'all. I was born in 83. <laughs> you know, don't don't cancel me. But but this is why you couldn't let... That's why they didn't want them to learn how to read. That, like, do you understand, right? Like, and again, we have friends that say this, and we all know this, right? If a, 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 sla a slave owner could do whatever, ever, ever they wanted to to their slave, except teach them how to read. Like, just really just... You got, let's just stop. <laughs> let's just stop. And like, when we talk about literacy... 
and we we're not just talking about can you read the Dr. Seuss book, fam? Like we're talking about the stuff that is ingrained in that because literate people are not fit to be slaves. Like they cannot be. Once you see certain things, you just can't go back to it, right? Like think of a lady. Like think of a lady that might have dated you and then she dated somebody that had a lot more money. It's very difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult <laughs> for her to go backwards in that way, right? That's a terrible analogy, brother. Yeah, no, used, used to scrub shrimp, bro. Used to work in fast food, bro. Used to work in the restaurant industry. Yeah. Used yeah. to have to steal smoking breaks, right? Then yeah. you saw these jobs where they putting you in a hotel and they flying you around and I just got to write a blog? Yeah. Say no more. Like, yeah. say no more. And I'm making it exponentially more? Yeah. They don't, I'll write their blog too. And I'll do this one too, right? The problem, Charles, though, is we can't get everybody on a plane, though, to go see it. And that's, that's a big problem for us is that we have entire communities that have, I've called it for years, the belief gap. We have entire communities that have a gap in the belief between what their kids are capable of doing and what they're actually doing, what people think they can do. And they they have very few schools that could act as the like exemplar where you could go see it in the same city. But this gets even worse. And this one will hit home for you, having been in Oakland all that time, which is even when there are those exemplars, they become targets for criticism for people to kind of like explain away their success. Oh, they're only being successful because they're yeah. you know, not not because the kids brains are elastic and because the kids can be taught. No, that couldn't possibly be it. It's got to be all these other fancy reasons. Now, the, the thing, the example that I was saying that you would get from Oakland is there are a lot of parents in Oakland making different decisions and they're making them from lots of school choices of all different kinds of schools that are not always fantastic, you know, district, charter, whatever. Their choices just aren't great. Some of them are choosing schools where they're getting much better education. But there was a letter that I will never forget to the editor in one of the local papers that prints all the kind of like teacher union stuff. And it was a guy named Mordecai. I don't know his full name. But I think he passed away. God, did he? Rest well, in peace, Mordecai. Yeah, rest in peace, away. brother. Yeah. He wrote a piece called Mamas, This is What Happens When You Put Your Kids in Charter Schools. And the whole piece was a shaming piece of shaming black moms who are choosing charter schools because he wanted them to understand what that does to the other schools when they make a choice, when they take their kid and put them in another school. Now, take charters out of it. Just take a choice. I mean, just just call it like... You lived in Oakland. You know that families with resources in Oakland are making a lot of different decisions. And none of those decisions are based upon what will happen to the regular system if they move their kids somewhere, right? But for our people, we're supposed to feel guilty, right? When we make a, a choice that people don't like. Tell me, like how, <laughs> tell me how you don't go crazy, especially having lived in Oakland so long and having worked for the district and working for others, when there's this kind of progressive attitude about us being able to have that agency to make the decisions we need to make, wherever we need to go, right or left, just to make the decision for ourselves. And we get the backlash from the progressives. What's the smartest way you think to actually address that? Well, you, you, you said the word, man, and you, you, you brought us full circle. You said guilty. It make you feel guilty about that, right? And then that's why I do so much work on, on the person first, bro. Because it's like, how you letting this? And he was an old white dude that like just loved unions. That's just who he was at his core. And I, God bless him, because he just was who he was. The worst people are the ones that lie to you and act like they're your friend, <laughs> and, and do some other stuff. They don't talk to you until you're doing that. But he was, he was, he was consistent in his crazy. And I, I God bless you, man. Wherever the hell you may be, bro. But I, I like, I like when I know who my battle is. Right? You know what I'm saying? We, we can be cordial if I know if, if hey, you there, I'm there. Let's do it, right? But I think that part of it, man, is like, 
I can't convince you of that if you if you are confident in who you are and that you deserve better. Mm -hmm. So something is tapping into your inner guilt. Something is tapping into this is a self fulfilling prophecy that I'm poor, that I'm at these schools, I'm in squalor, and I need to. So I got to put the I'm responsible for the whole community. The whole education system is going to fail if I don't put my black kid in this failing school that's been failing for fifty years. Why they get to choose the best schools? You know, you know, you know. Oakland has some of the most prominent private schools in the in the world, like some of the most prominent. Like like Marin County is right there. It's the richest county it was for a while. I don't know if it still is. You know, some of them people sent their kids to the head Royces and to the in Oakland sent their kids from Marin to Oakland to go to school. Yes, absolutely. Car service, baby. And then and then some of those schools build housing, right? Like and they pay a lot of money for it, right? So like I mean, people that make two hundred fifty. 200 some thousand dollars getting like need-based scholarships to send their kids to these schools. Mm -hmm. So what so so you have to just understand why is it that I have to sacrifice my kid at the teeth of this system that doesn't love me? And also, by the way, you gotta know your history. How did public schools even come to be about? How 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 did how did these southern black people, you know what I'm saying? Like school wasn't a requirement back in the day. It was in the South. That kid got it. We need nine of them. Because three gonna die and we need somebody to till this field. And then the North said, well, we we think they should have school, but the schools they should have should be at the service of us. Like they should be taught to be service people. And black people in the South that were just a few steps away from slavery took all their little coins, the few black people that they had that could actually read, built, worked with these churches and philanthropy and built these one room schools. And they did so well that them planner class people was like, oh, we want that and we taking it. And now you got free public school as a requirement across this country. Like, we got to look at, like, Lyndon B. Johnson at, with the Elementary and Secondary Act. And that's what No Child Left Behind. Every president since then, like, it is all a, a newer version of ESEA. And, like, you got to understand where this stuff came from. Your people are the reason that kids everywhere are being educated. You, It has been paid for you in the blood already. I'm, there go another church reference, right? Like, like, somebody paid the cost for you already. So you don't have to front that bill again. And I got to help you know that. So that's why my trainers have a mix of that. My trainers have a mix of stand up. It has a mix of Chris Rock and Eddie Murphy. It has a mix of social work. It has a mix of those NA meetings. It has a mix of those parent groups and those teachings around. This is how schools is kind of working. Like it has a mix of those meetings that I was at in the hospital. You Do you, do you know this, Chris? Do you know when a doctor messes up, they have to go in front of their peers and they have to redo everything. They have to explain and walk through their surgery plan, what they did, what they published, what they gave. And then their peers who have high credibility are going to say yay or nay. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? And it's, su it's such a, if you want the professional field, educators listen to me good and i'm not bashing you i want you if you want to be here i don't want you if you don't want to be here because that's dangerous too doctors that you respect and love they all got to have this thing called malpractice insurance because you mess up enough the hospital was like yeah that's that dude we didn't do that right so remember what you're asking for so when a white person like mordecai or anybody is coming down and they ain't never talked to you before, but this is what they talking to you on, but they would be uncomfortable if your kids sat next to them in they school. That's where they start talking about the need for neighborhood schools. Well, you just told me poverty. You just told me that everything was too poor to be able to happen. So if my school look like a prison, why would I want to put my kid there? Okay, well, I want to build a charter school. Oh, you, I can't build that school here? Well, what you want me to do? You get what I'm saying? So I, th I just think that, that that's what you do. You They got to know who they are, Chris. They got to go... Through the metamorphosis that you went through, bro. Like, and they gotta see themselves 
we just have a bad self-image of ourselves at times. I'm talking about my, I'll add myself in it too. I'm not benevolent, bro. I, I make so many mistakes. I make mistakes every day. I'm telling you the parents, I'm telling you the advocates, I'm telling you the teachers, I'm telling you the students. Anybody around you that don't never mess up nothing, they ain't never made a mistake and something is always somebody else's fault, get as far away from that as possible. And if a public school system is always telling you, well, it's the money, it's the charters, it's to this, it's to that, it's, it ain't never me, you in a toxic relationship. You been, you, you might want to get up out of there. You might need to find that that boyfriend and make a little bit more, that girlfriend and make a little bit more where your standards and your taste don't went up and then you can't go back to that. Yeah, it's a long-term bad relationship for a lot of people. And I think just the way that plantation systems used to work, you've been trained into it too, right? So when you are born to a, a mom who was trained in the same way you're about to be trained, where the rewards and punishments were meant to keep you where you're at and stop you from moving anywhere, it's hard to break away from that. And you listen, you have seen school boards work. I've seen school board works. Yes. We there would be times where we where we would have schools that were so bad that they needed to be closed 10 years ago and they would be built for 1600 people and only have 300 in it. But when we would go to try to close them, 300 people would show up that weren't even in the school. They would be like all people from the 70s and the 80s with letter jackets talking about this school, the best school ever and blah, blah. And you'd be like, you know, have you volunteered in this school in the last 20 years? Have you been here? Have you seen anything? Well, y'all can't close this school. Well, listen, listen, I understand that you came through this school and I understand that like you are proud of this and I can't take that away from you. But what I can take away from you is the people who were weaponized you against the other people that are, are avoiding that and getting their kids out of there. And to me, that's agency. It's, at the end of the day, listen, I can believe what I want to believe about my own politics or whatnot, but people do have to have the agency to disagree with me too. Like if you want to put your kid in one of those schools, listen, God bless you, right? If you want to avoid those schools, God bless you. I'm just, I, I'm just happy that you know the difference and that you, know, you feel like you have the power to have agency. That's why I think your power, your work is like so important. I think it's important to us though, beyond just the parents themselves. I think that when leaders are making policy about their lives, that they need to be held to deeper account for what those people's agency actually is about, right? They need to do what you're doing, which is spend more time. The difference between, now see someone in the, in the audience is going to get mad at me about this. You mentioned social work. I'm going to say the difference between sociology and anthropology is sociology comes to the village and tells you what's wrong with you. Anthropology comes and lives in the village and finds out what's right about you, right? We need more anthropologists than sociologists, right? And what we have are villages yeah, they gonna get you. sociologists. They're going to get me. <laughs> they are going to get me. But, but am I lying? Am I lying? You do more anthropology, you know? I mean, you're a social worker at heart, but, you know. No, I hear you, man. I mean, listen, man. I think, you know, you got to know who you are. And you got you to gotta go through that process and learn. And that could be a tough process. I mean, you know, there's a lot of times I flamed out in the last few years, right? Like, I mean, you've seen it. You got to see it up close and personal with me. And there's changes. And you're going to constantly be changing. I would just say, man, like, I think what Chris just said is important. And I, I'm talking to the audience. Like, if there are three people in a room, if Chris and two other dads are in a room, and Chris is like, look, this is what I need. And, and this school, school A is providing it. It's a charter school. It is what it is. And dad B is like, you know, I played basketball. That traditional public school has produced X amount of people. And my son is in that way. And I can't afford that private school. But this is where I'm going to put him because this is the plan that we on. And this other parent is like, well, look, you know, I got a little bit of cake, man. I see this private school. Like, and everybody makes the best decision for their kid. And they walk away. Those three men are friends. Those three men are still cool. Like, you got you to gotta ask yourself in this war where it's like, 
one side will shun you for not choosing a school that they may have never seen or they've seen the stats of, which is even worse, and are still force you to go there. I think a lot of parent choice people are like, I actually don't give a damn what you choose. I just want you to be a chooser. I just want you to be able to like assess your kid, assess the school and make the best possible choice and be ready to fight in any situation. Like you're going to run into problems at any of them. And that's what it did for me in the beginning, Chris, when I was like, you know, hearing different things. Like, I, you know, I was I was a poli sci major, man. I was I was on union track, bro. Like I would have got a really good education. They send you they send a lot of my friends to like parts of like, you know, Central America to, you know, like I think you I think in that way, union work is really important. I think when we talk about education, I think that. I don't think all unions are created equal. And, and I think some are very different. So this is not a, I'm not an anti-union person or anything like that. And the only reason I keep bringing this up is in the last eight years, the go-to strategy has been to strike and strike immediately or threaten strike. And it's starting to happen like almost every single year. And again, there should be a workers' rights things and all that stuff. And I'm not mad at that. If they come out with the same support, if parents get to a place and they say, well, we're striking from your schools. We're leaving before before count day. For the people that don't know, it's called different things in different places. But basically, there's a time at the beginning of the year where schools turn in how many kids they got enrolled, and that determines how much funding they get. So if parents are like, listen, if you don't get it together and we don't see X, Y, and Z happen, we're all pulling our kids out mm -hmm. at the same time before count day. Try it and see what happens. If you ain't never seen parents talk bad to, and you're going to go back, I'm telling you, it's going to feel like you back in 1953. I'm telling you, mm. I've not seen it pulled off yet. I would love to see it pulled off. Yeah, Montgomery style boycott, like a bus boycott. And the thing that, you know, you and I have talked about this before, the thing that Montgomery got right was they needed to like still arrange rides for people, yep. right? So like, you need black education. You need black education and black educators. I just want to say to my listeners, you know, we have talked about unions a couple of times here. I just want to be real clear. I was the member of a union. I was a SEIU uh, endorsed candidate, and I'm currently a community member of the National Education Association. So just want to let people know that this is that we're not bashing it. It's not in that. But here's the thing. I think labor's are the last line of defense in a democracy that is being attacked right now. And it's Absolutely. the reason why I've changed my tune on them a lot over the last oh, uh, few years. Oh, unions are important. But I will say this much they cannot live on the arrogance of not thinking that they need to reform too, right? I can support you and still be a critical friend saying, you still have some work to do to actually modernize yourself for the needs of the people that you say that you serve right now. So that's the discussion. I just don't think you should just be a foregone member of anything because when you are, they take your presence for granted when they don't think they can lose you. So a lot of there's a lot of union people in my family. I love them. like, And I think that unions have been important to the makeup of this country. And I also think that they were a very racist uh, <laughs> mechanism in the beginning that kept black people out of work. And it's part of the reason unions was the reason that all them black teachers got fired or black teachers weren't getting hired. Those unions were protected, were built to protect those white workers. So, and, and, and there are school reform people that don't have good schools and they can get this smoke too. It's not about loyalty, right? If we're talking about your kid and we're talking about what you're trying to build and what you're trying to be, like to thine own self be true at some point. <laughs> mm -hmm. At least if not to thine own self, to thine own seed be true. Let's change it to that. What does that look like? We didn't took everybody to Wade Church today. <laughs> uh, well, listen, I appreciate you for coming as always. It's always fun, man. We have had this conversation, you know, in different venues and we're going to keep working together. I want people to know how they can find you and find your work. So let people know how they can find you. Yes, I burned out on, on, on social media, man. But 
I have kept my Twitter, which is still at Cole the third. That's at C C O L E I I I. And on YouTube, just youtube.com slash Dr. Charles Cole the third. And you can find everything that I talked about is free. It's absolutely free on my website, charlescoleiii.com. You can find the book for parent agency. You can find the book that I wrote for black boys who are going to be the first in their family to go to college. You can find the research that I've done around HBCUs and its impact on HBCU-led black schools and black children. You can find a lot of that stuff. I give a lot of it away for free. It's there. If you want me to come out, there's a place on the website. That part is not free, but (laughs) it can be negotiated and worked on. I got to run a business, right? But like, you know, but I do give a lot of stuff away and and I give things away that I need it. So if you can go support, just go and, and, and pull down those tools. And if you got questions, engage me. There's a place to ask questions and I'll answer them to the best of my ability. But Chris, I just want to say thank you, man. And I just uh, I just want to give you flowers, bro. I, I just feel like you have put me in touch with so many people. You have been just a really dope friend from the beginning. I know I get on your nerves at times, man, but you have played the big brother role in my life really, really well. And I appreciate you and I thank you for it, man. You, you keep going, brother, you know. Well, I appreciate you definitely as always. And what I will say to people out there who follow, you know, this type of stuff and what we do, what I will say to people all the time is thank you for giving me that gratitude. But I will say to you and to people my age, definitely, if you think that mentorship is like one direction and you are not being mentored by younger people, you're going to die. <laughs> you're gonna die. <laughs> That's all I can say. If you're not being mentored by younger people, if you think you're the one that does all the mentoring and that you're supposed to be a mentor or whatnot, blah, 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 but you're not being mentored by younger people, you're going to get old fast and die. So I just, you know, not to scare you anything like that, but I'm just going to say, have you a cadre of smart, sharp, young people in your life who are adding to your knowledge base and keeping you relevant or else? (laughs) I hate to say it to you like that or else. This has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show on the Branch Network. I appreciate you all for listening. If you have enjoyed the show, please share it with others or reach out to Dr. Charles Cole if you want to find out more about the work that he does. We appreciate you as always. We will see you on the next episode of The Citizen Stewart Show. Hey. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show.